Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have the second segment of our Ask Scott questions from you, our listeners. All right, Scott, how are you feeling for another round of questions here? You did pretty good last time. Well, I'm glad I passed. I'm glad I passed. So, <laughs> yeah, that's going? a change. Usually, uh, you as the teacher are asking the questions, and you get a grade, and now you get the questions thrown your way. That's right. I'm ready. <laughs> All right. Well, this week our first question comes from Ben Brown, and he asks, um, "What are your thoughts on the presence of Christ in the Eucharist?" What are my thoughts on the presence of Christ in the Eucharist? Yeah, and I think he's kind of particularly, um, you know, interested in angle, angle. Excuse me, Ang- Anglicanism. Jess. Yes, yeah. Thank you. These You're more familiar the, with the, with that those than in the I. independent Christian churches can't even <laughs> pronounce the term. Okay, all right. Yeah. Here, the um, one of my friends, a theologian. I won't give you his name once hearing a conversation about transubstantiation, which was a, uh, is the, is the typical Roman Catholic or is a a descriptor for the typical Roman Catholic view as the, that, um, that the priest in holding up the host, uh, witnesses or participates in a miracle of the bread and the wine becoming the body and blood of Christ. And, um, uh, all the philosophical discussion about accidents and particulars that uh, were a part of that discussion said to me, and I thought this was exactly the way, uh, exactly what I believe to this day, is the Roman Catholics have to have an answer for everything. And it was a very interesting expression by someone who was not a Roman Catholic, obviously, that at times we just don't know. Uh, And the mystery of something is a part of our Christian faith at times. So if I'm asked uh, about the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, this is the way I look at it. I think Christ is present. I don't know how exactly. I don't know in which way. Uh, But I believe that, uh, that the body, that the bread and the wine are more than facile symbols that you could turn them, as I once had a friend say, into pizza and Coke, and it would make no difference. Um, I, I think that, I think from the very early church on, this is my body, this is my blood. Um, yes, there's definitions on the meaning of is, and how something material can be something that it is not, for instance, bread and Christ, or bread and body, um, I think it is more than symbol, and that I, I look at these as sacred objects that, that uh, I, don't, I don't subscribe to, the, to a theory that, that there was a miracle that occurred so that they actually become the body and blood of Christ in the in transubstantiation sense, but I look at it as the the very presence of Christ, and that in ingesting I'm participating in the death and burial of Christ, 
So I, I like to affirm the, and this is something that I have not always believed, um, the real presence in some sense. And one of my friends once told me that I believed in the real absence. And actually that statement that he made um, was a wake-up call for me to think because I, I didn't want to affirm absence. I wanted to affirm presence. But I affirm the real presence of Christ in the bread and in the wine in a, in a mysterious way. Um, maybe Luther was right in saying that they are, that Christ is mingling among the bread uh, and the wine. So I wonder if you have any insights on the, you know, the priest's role and how, how that impacts and specifically in Anglicanism. Well, uh, you're going to get some different viewpoints here. Uh, some are going to emphasize that this is an act of God. Mm-hmm. And others are going to emphasize that it is an act of God that couldn't have happened without the priest. Um, and some are going to be almost Baptists on this. Uh, so they shouldn't be, but some of them are, because I've heard them say things. I, I think the priest solemnizes the event. The priest pronounces words that are performative. And in pronouncing these words... Um, you know, these are the these are the gifts of God for the people of God, and reading the Eucharist words that on the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord took bread and broke it and said, "This is my body, this is my blood." These words in re- being repeated over the bread and over the wine are performative utterances that make the event sacred and the presence of Christ. Um, is sealed and verbally pronounced and announced so that the people who come forward or who receive the bread and the wine um, participate in what those words uh, have stated. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So if you were to think just kind of in general about Anglicanism, um, what do you think of the future of Anglicanism and, and what it looks like, what it has going, maybe some challenges that it will be facing in the coming years? Well, you know, these are, I believe in the, I believe in the church. Okay. So this is one of the articles of the creed. I believe in the people of God, that God is at work in the world through the church, through his spirit, in the presence of Christ. So the Anglican Church is an expression of faithfulness to the church tradition that combines um, the Reformation with the pre-Reformation so that Anglicanism is a, a Protestant faith expression of the one true church. I do not say the Anglican church is the one true church. Mm-hmm. It is it is a Protestant, an Anglo-Protestant expression of the one true church. And um, I am not an evangelist for Anglicanism, although I believe in the, you know, I believe in the faith of the Anglican church and I want to affirm that uh, the Anglican Church allows diversity and disagreement. 
and dissent. And, uh, and I like that kind of freedom. Um, it affirms women in the church. Not all the segments in the United States do, but I'm hoping more will. And um, I, I think I'm, I'm answering this person's questions, but when it comes to the future, you know, the future to me is the church, not the Anglican church, not the Presbyterian church, not Willow Creek, not uh, the Catholics, but God is going to be faithful to his church. And Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what I believe. Yeah, yeah, that's the, that's right. Jesus built the church. Jesus promises to build the church and our job is to make disciples in that wherever we're at. So um, one of the, the next question here is from one of your students, Doug McPherson, or maybe we should say Dr. Doug, right? Now at this that's point. That's right, Dr. Um, Doug McPherson. Yeah, he, he really expresses, you know, gratitude to, you know, kind of some of the things that you just shared there about your, your dedication and faithfulness to the church and really to provide the church with good scholarship. And he asks, are there ways that Scott would recommend pastors work to bridge the gap with the academic and the church, between the, the academia and the churches? Um, I think uh, pastors need to adopt a discipline of ongoing education. And so at one time, I saw DMIN degrees as sort of a factory and a mill for seminaries to be able to make more money. And uh, over time, in getting to know DMIN students, I became convinced that they were actually looking for learning experiences and growth because they loved seminary and they wanted to, they wanted to get pushed into a new, new realms of thinking so that their ministries could grow. And I believe that pastors, whether they do D-Min degrees, and I, and, and I love our D-Min program at Northern Seminary, um, I believe that pastors need to, to develop intentional, conscious habits of theological and intellectual growth. Now, this along with spiritual growth. To do that, I think that they need to be connected to maybe college professors or seminary professors, or at least a really fine magazine um, uh, that, or blogs that review books that are coming out so that the pastors can say, hey, John Barclay just wrote a really good book on grace, and I want to read it, and it's going to be a challenge, and it might take them three months of their extra marginal reading time to read it, but they'll grow from it. Or the new book by, by Haley Gorenson Jacob called Conformed to the Image of His Son, Reconsidering Paul's Theology of Glory in the Book of Romans. This is a wonderfully written, um, read, uh, uh, let's say, revision of her dissertation. Uh, so much, uh, so, so interesting is it that Tom Wright openly confesses in the preface that, that he learned a lot from this dissertation, and she has uh, very kindly reworked it into publication form uh, for InterVarsity. And I think it's books like that, that if we read, uh, that if pastors read, they will grow. Um, maybe they devote themselves to, let's say, a, a couple of Paul's letters or 
let's say, one gospel and two Paul's letters or two New Testament letters, and they kind of make a commitment to working through it, let's say, early in their career or now, uh, with a major commentary, and then as new books come out on that book, let's say on Mark or on Colossians or on um, Hebrews, that they work through that book as well so that they can become more intellectually alert to a given topic. No pastor can study the common, all the commentaries and books that come out on all the books of the Bible. People who think they can, can't. It's impossible because there are so many publications today. Uh, I talked recently to a person who has spent his entire career teaching and working on the book of Romans, and he said to me, no one has read all of it, uh, even though a lot of people like to pretend they have. Mm-hmm. Um, so There's a lot been would, written about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I would say learn, uh, find a couple books, work through them, and then try to stay up to date on some new studies that have come out. of. Or let's just say you want to become a, an expert on Pauline theology. So you read one of the major ones like Jimmy Dunn, Theology of the Apostle Paul. And then you, uh, as new ones come out, John Barclay, uh, you read it and you kind of stay up to date with what's going on. And you, you have a little bit of an up-to-dateness on something, but it's intellectually stimulating that way, and it's something that you can do on your own. Yeah, well, and I think it's important to see that, um, you know, our job as pastors and the professors or academics' jobs as New Testament scholars um, is to work together. And we shouldn't be fighting each other, competing um, with each other, but supporting each other because you can't have one, you know, without the other. And, and well, really, this... when we see each other as, as beneficial and assets to each other is, is where I think it can greater bless the church. I think this is another thing, is that pastors in a local area— can decide that they're going to become a reading group with one another. Mm. And let's just say that each one of you has a a responsibility for the year. Say you get 12 people or 15 people, and you say, um, Doug McPherson, you read uh, Matthew Croesman's new book on Romans 5 called The Emergence of Sin, and report to us. So now all 12 of them learn about the book, but only one of them has to read it and that we can become teachers of one another this way. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a seminar approach. And there's no reason why pastors can't do that with one another. Yeah, that's good. Well, to kind of shift gears a little bit here, this next question is from Myron Williams. And um, he his question is in regards to some of the Willow Creek posts that you've been writing about recently on your Jesus Creed blog. And um, he asked this, and specifically in light of your, your perspective on how it would have been handled differently if Willow was a denomination. And he says, in light of the news today that the Roman Catholic Church again finds itself embroiled in sexual abuse, how does Dr. McKnight's theory of denominational oversight and abuse change the situation? Any any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a good question, Myron. And the first thing I want to say is the Willow Creek situation is a source of great sadness in our family. Uh, we attended for a decade. Uh, we have family members who've worked at Willow and have others have participated in Willow for many years. So we're, we're sad about what has happened. And um, 
And his question is a good one. I made a, a strong point because people are asking, are, have asked me, how could this have happened? Well, Willow is autonomous. It, it is not connected to other churches in a hierarchical or even in a fiduciary responsibility to other churches type relationship. Mm -hmm. So I talked about autonomous churches with autonomous pastors who are largely not in interaction with others, that um, that if they were in a denomination, those sorts of things can't exist. But uh, And the Roman Catholic Church is a perfect illustration that it is not governance that protects churches from these things, but goodness. And that was a theme in my blog post, is that it doesn't matter whether you have an autonomous church with an autonomous pastor or a denominational church with a denominational framework where you can have checks and balances, and the Catholic Church probably has the best structures you could ever have. If you don't have goodness, it's not going to work right. And what happened in the Catholic Church is corruption at the top that prohibited the truth from happening, repentance being required, and discipline occurring. The same thing happened at Willow. Uh, at Willow Creek, sadly, is you have a pastor who is having inappropriate relations, sexual abuse, sexual harassment at different levels with different women over a long period of time, and a lack of ob observation, a lack of accountability, and a lack of responsibility on the part of the elders, even when they knew about it, to investigate it in a in a completely objective way, and the result was four years longer of this behavior occurring mm -hmm. and um, a the lack of goodness, I think, both with the pastor and the elders and the processes, all the way down to the human resources, yeah. simply corrupted the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so it is, not, it is not that governance will save the problem. Governance will protect people if there are various levels of goodness present. Yeah, I think that's so right. And, and you know, even to compare other maybe similar churches um, to the autonomy level of Willow, um, you know, there are certainly churches in that vein that have fewer policies than Willow. And so it wasn't even Willow's policies, but it was that corruption and the lack of goodness that um, created such a tragic situation um, for so many people. Yep. Yep. Uh, all right. Well, to wrap up, we've got two uh, last Bible questions for you. Um, does that sound good to, to get back into and, and to wrap up our questions today? We'll, we'll try. All right. Very good. Well, this one comes from Heather Hart, and uh, she actually utilized the um, the app and the, the link that I sent out um, to you on your blog post of, of recording it. So we've got her on recording that we will, um, that, that you'll get to hear from her, but um, here is her question. Hi, Scott. I've been reading Adam and the Genome and the last world of Adam and Eve. And I'm wondering how these relate to the concept of original sin. I'm not exactly sure what to think about uh, in terms of like an inherited sin nature if we're not all necessarily connected to Adam. So any insight you can provide to that would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. Well, this is a good question, and um, it's a difficult one. Um, 
It is normally understood in the history of the church that original sin is sort of passed on genetically from human to human. Now, not all theologians in the history of the church have thought like that, that they've thought there was a representation that all people are guilty. Here's what I would say, is that Paul believes that everybody is a sinner. I am not sure that Paul thinks that everybody is born with guilt and therefore um, and therefore they, they are, that original guilt is passed on with original sin. I don't see that. Paul believes that everybody dies because everybody sins and there is no one who doesn't. How that happens and why that happens, Paul does not explain. The Jewish world around Paul connected Adam's sin to other humans, but it did not explain it in terms of original guilt or original sin the way later Augustinian and Protestant and Catholic theology did. So I think I would say there's a mysterious dimension there that is just not absolutely clear in the New Testament. Sure. Sure. What would you say the most important concept of original sin that's there in the New Testament? Well, I, I think original sin is a construct. What Paul teaches is that every human being dies because every human being sins. So all humans are sinners and in need of salvation. Yeah, that's good. All right. Well, and the, the, you know, the one of the standard hypotheses is that because of the world into which we're born, there is a proclivity towards sin. That's more of an Eastern Orthodox understanding. That, to me, is entirely reasonable as well. I, I'm, I, I'm more of this. I'm not sure that Paul teaches some of these things, but I think original sin and even original guilt are pretty reasonable constructs uh, in the history of the church as we've tried to put together what the New Testament or the Bible teaches. That makes sense. Makes sense. All right, last question here for you, and it comes from Rick Stevens. And his question is in regards to the a passage in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, with Jesus in the garden, and, um, you know, where Jesus talks about how everything is possible and asks for the cup to pass from him um, and says, you know, not my will, but yours be done, God. And Rick's question and observation starts with an observation and then has a question is that certainly Jesus is acknowledging God's limitlessness, everything is possible for you. However, the context here is the cup of suffering Jesus is about to drink. I've often wondered if there was more to this statement than simply acknowledging God's ability and Jesus's willingness. Is Jesus suggesting that God could accomplish his redemptive purpose by another means other than the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus? That would be a fascinating question to end on here. Well, Chaz, I will admit that this is a fascinating question. And I will also admit that I don't think there is an answer to this question. Hmm. I don't think, I mean, I think God created the best of all possible worlds for the kinds of people that he created. Sure. And therefore, I would say that his design was for Jesus to die and uh, if this cup can pass from me is very difficult to understand. And I think that people who have absolute clarity on it are probably knowing more than what the Bible actually teaches. 
but Jesus submits to the will of God while at the same time, uh, as a human being, it seems to me, expressing uh, his, um, he's expressing to God uh, sort of a a wonder if if it's possible for this to happen any other way. But I, I don't think that there's an absolutely clear answer on this one, and I know I don't have one. Yeah, I mean, do you think it says anything about the 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 knowledge of Jesus like is he does he, you know what does he know of the father and how does that impact his his humanity and i guess is sometimes a question that pops into my head without i don't know if i answered that right or if that made any sense well yeah but i mean all those questions are things we don't i don't think we know sure for you all things are possible that's a that's a confession yeah that's a belief a conviction remove this cup from me that's a request yeah and that cup has got to be the cup of suffering because he's facing death in a violent way but not what i want but what you want so the end result of this is that jesus submits to the will of the father knowing that the father's will is good and will bring about redemption and he wants that to happen that's that's the way i would read it nice nice well um yeah that makes sense great time great question to round out our episode here today uh how you feeling scott you made it through here yes yes my throat is worn out throat is worn out but we got a lot of questions answered and uh we'd love to hear more questions so i'm going to include again a link that in in the episode to be able to find where you can ask a question or send me an email at crobbins at seminary.edu and i'd love to got some more that we weren't able to get to today so um we won't do full episodes like this um ongoing but we're going to try to include segments here and there. So whether there was a part of our discussion today or in any of the episodes, as you got a question on, um, would love to have them come across my inbox and and see your question and we'll get to them as as best we can. Um, And if you ever have a question about an episode, you know, feel free to reach out and we'll include that and more of these Ask Scott Um, segments that we'll have ongoing in the podcast. But we're grateful as always to have you as a listener. Um, Hope you're having an incredible day and look forward to be with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 